Turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 8, if you would. John chapter 8. Go back to the place where we had our reading this morning. As you're doing that, I'll just kind of let it sink in that the drummer is standing up here at the pulpit about to preach. If, you, if you're just visiting, you don't, you didn't know that. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have told you. Uh, but uh, good to see everybody. Uh, and I'm happy to uh, be able to stand in for, for Graham. Uh, I'm reminded every time he asks me to do this just how much work he puts in week after week after week preparing to stand up in front of us and to tell us what God's Word says. And it's not a light thing. Uh, you know, Scripture's very clear. It tells us that, uh, you know, be ye not many teachers, for theirs is the stricter judgment. Uh, ours is the stricter judgment because we've put ourselves in between you and God to tell you what God's Word says and how you ought to apply it in your lives. And so that's a pretty serious thing. I take it seriously, and I know he does too. And so uh, it's good for me to be reminded of that from time to time to, to teach because uh, it really makes me appreciate him and the work that he puts in week in, week out to stand up here and do what he does. And he does a fantastic job of it. And, uh, and I tell my family, having been a Christian for a long time and been a few different churches, I tell my family on a regular basis how blessed we are to have a, a faithful pastor, a faithful shepherd who will come up here week in and week out and just lay out the Word of God and teach it to us uh, in a way that we can understand it and grab a hold of it and do something with it. So very thankful for that, and uh, I appreciate him giving me this opportunity this morning. So John chapter 8. Uh, I want to read the passage to you again, even though we've read it once this morning, and uh, then we'll kind of jump into it. John chapter 8, verse 31, the same passage that uh, John Paul read a while ago. So to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're Abraham's descendants that have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's, I have to say, one of my favorite passages in Scripture sort of captivated me. I've come to it over and over again over the years and studied it and read it and meditated on it and, and, and you know, sliced it and diced it. And there's so much there that, that there is to unpack. It's, it's, it's really a challenge. And uh, so... Uh, we're going to try to do that. We, you know, it's funny, you read and study and prepare and read commentators and different things, and you know, there's, there's a thousand different angles that you can come at this thing. But, but really, the heart of the passage uh, is, is verse 32. It just jumps off the page at you, and you've heard people, it's funny, you've heard people out in society quote this passage. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they don't really understand the context of what that that verse is saying and, and so we want to unpack that but freedom is a concept that's near and dear to us as Americans as Texans especially uh, our nation was founded on the principles of liberty and justice for all liberty is just another word for freedom and, and more lives than, than can be counted have died some in your family maybe uh, and, and uh, have died and served to establish and defend that principle of freedom in fact protecting Certain freedoms were so important to the framers of our Constitution uh, that soon after the new Congress met, uh, the legislature under the leadership of James Madison prepared ten amendments to the Constitution, known as the Bill of Rights. 
And the First Amendment guarantees some very profound and important freedoms to us as Americans. Uh, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble, freedom to petition the government for redress. And as we've assembled together this morning, we're, we're enjoying one of those freedoms. We have the freedom of religion. that We can come here this morning and we can worship. We're enjoying that this morning, the freedom that the Constitution and the First Amendment to the Constitution provides. But as wonderful as political freedom is, as, as amazing as that is, it doesn't represent true freedom. Uh, because you can be free politically and still live in slavery. Do you understand that? Today we live in what's arguably the most free country that's ever existed in the history of mankind. And yet, people are in bondage to all sorts of things. They live in bondage every day to all sorts of things. They, they didn't wake up one morning and decide, you know, I'm going to go be a slave today. Today is my day of slavery. That, that wasn't it at all. That's not how it works. No one does that. The fact is, I'm convinced that people want to be free. We have an innate desire to be free. God created us to be free in the real sense. But the problem is they're looking for freedom in all the wrong places. And so inevitably when you look for what you're looking for in the wrong place, you're going to come up with the wrong answer. And uh, you're going to end up uh, being led to things other than freedom. And so... Folks are ending up in slavery every day even though they're in search of freedom. And probably everyone in this room right now, there's probably a, a face or a person, somebody in your family, somebody you know, that you could say, yeah, that's so-and-so's story. He thought he was going to find freedom in fill in the blank. thought he was going to find freedom in drugs. He thought he was going to find freedom in alcohol. He thought he was going to find freedom in just doing whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, however he felt, you know. The prodigal son kind of freedom. Hey, just give me my money. Let me go. I want to be free. That kind of freedom. And we probably all know somebody like that. Maybe some people. I know some people who've tried to find freedom in relationships. If they could, if that, you know, I know a woman. If they could just find the right man, that would be freedom. All kinds of things that we seek, freedom. And it all leads to slavery. Well, in our, in our passage this morning, in John chapter 8, we're, we're going to learn about freedom. The real thing, the real deal. And what we're going to see is that that kind of freedom is only available to disciples of Jesus Christ who consistently obey his word and come to know and apply the truth of God to their lives every day. That's where true freedom is found. Can't be found any other place. So before we dig into that, let me kind of set the context for you, okay? So the setting is Jerusalem. When, when we read this passage here, let me just, you know, we, I don't want to pull it out. I want to go back to where it's found. And so I want you to understand what's happening here. The setting is Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples have been there. They're, they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles or what some people call the Feast of Booths. Uh, this was one of three uh, Jewish feasts that usually occurs in late September, mid-October. Uh, it begins five days after the Day of Atonement. It's at the time of the fall harvest. Okay, all the crops have come in. It's just been completed. And it was a time of really just kind of joyous celebration um, because of the crops coming in. The Israelites celebrated God's continued provision because of the crops. But also there was a backwards look to it. And they were celebrating uh, his protection and provision for 40 years in the wilderness as they were escaping uh, from Pharaoh in Egypt. And part of the requirement for this feast was, it's kind of interesting when you think about it, uh, it kind of sounds a little uh, 
uh, almost a little weird, but, uh, but part of the requirement was that everyone was to build a temporary little shelter. It was an object lesson here. They would build this little temporary shelter or this little booth and they would live in it for a week. So it was, it was again, a reminder of that they, they had spent all of those years traveling in the wilderness in these tents, these temporary structures. And the feast was known for uh, some rites or some rituals. So there, was this, there was a water drawing kind of rite or ritual and then there were lamps, lighting of lamps and and so it's kind of interesting, Jesus being the master teacher, never losing an opportunity for a teachable moment in the midst of this festival uh, where there's these water drawing rites and these lamps being lit is the exact context where Jesus declared himself to be living water and where he, where he declared himself to be the light of the world. So he's there in Jerusalem in that setting. It's about six months prior to his death. The Jewish leaders really have rejected him. And the antagonism with them has just grown. If it was on a graph, it would look like this. They've just become more and more and more antagonistic. Um, and, and they've rejected him ultimately. They want him dead. Uh, in fact, by the end, if we flipped over to chapter, if we get to the end of chapter 8, you see them picking up stones to throw at him to kill him. And this wasn't the first time that they had tried that, but he was able to escape prior to because it wasn't his time. But during this same period of time when their hostility was growing, and they were becoming more and more antagonistic towards him, there were some that were attracted to him. And that's the way it is, isn't it? I mean, there's some who become more antagonistic as they're exposed to the truth, but there's always some that by the grace of God are drawn in. And we see some of those folks talked about in chapter, uh, that same chapter in verse 30. Look at what Jesus says there. So, so we know who he's talking to here, okay? It says, even as he spoke. So he's preaching this sermon. He's here in Jerusalem. He's at this feast. And he's preaching this sermon, speaking to this group of people. And as he's finished, it says, even as he spoke, many believed in him. Many believed in him. Okay? So it's to those believing Jews. So when we get to verse 31 and it says, to the Jews who believed in him, that's the Jews he's talking, to, talking about, okay? Those believing Jews uh, and in his dialogue with them, as we're going to see, because that's what we're looking at through verse 36, is packed with some profound insights into the concepts of faith and truth and freedom. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, Jesus said to those Jews, uh, he, he's, he's talking to that group of Jews. So how does he counsel them? So here are this, here's this group of Jews, and I'm, I'm used to a lapel mic. I'm trying not to get too far away from this thing, so forgive me. Every time I start to move, I think, oh, I've got to come back. So uh, as he's talking to these Jews, uh, what does he say? How does he counsel them? They profess faith. They're, they're showing a level of belief. Okay, They have the beginnings of faith in him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. So what does he tell them? Well, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, think about what he doesn't say, okay? He doesn't try to assure them of their salvation like some of us might try to do. Oh, you've believed. You know, welcome to the family of God. You just need to drive a stake in the ground today and forever remember this day because you're in, buddy. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even try to assure them of their salvation. He doesn't lower the bar, the standard in any way to try to make it easy for them. In fact, what he does is he draws a theological line in the sand. And he lays down the foundational requirement for being a true disciple, a real disciple. And in doing that, he implies that there are disciples who aren't true 
who aren't real. And anytime you start qualifying anything with adjectives like true and real and genuine, the implication is always that there are also things that are not true, not real, not genuine. And that's what he's done here. He said, there's an if statement here, okay? This is conditional. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So this is certainly the case with faith. There's the possibility of it being real. There's the possibility of it not being real. There is a real faith. There is a said faith. There are real disciples, and there are disciples that aren't real. And so in response to these Jews who had believed, Jesus is laying down this standard for them to measure themselves. They've got this beginning of faith. They're starting to believe. Their belief is at a level, a certain level. But will they be real disciples? That's the question. And he lays down this standard. And, and what we find out is their faith doesn't measure up. Their faith doesn't measure up. You say, well, Clay, how do you know that? How, did, that didn't, you know, how can you say that? The Bible says they believe. How can you sit there and tell me that, that somebody that the Bible says believes their faith wasn't real? Well, skip down to verse 44 and we find our clue. Okay? Because we're following a dialogue between Jesus and the Jews who believed. And we know there was a mixture. John, when he talks about Jews in the, in the context of John, most of the time he's referring to Jewish leaders. But within this specific context, even though some of them were probably in this group, he's talking about Jews who had believed, okay? Well, what does he say about those Jews who had believed in verse 44? He says to those same Jews, you are of your father the devil. <laughs> you are of your father the devil. I'd say that pretty well makes it unmistakably clear what the state of their heart was. They had the beginnings of faith, but it wasn't a complete faith. It wasn't a saving faith. And that's the first point in our outline this morning. If you're taking notes, I'm not nearly as organized as Graham. I don't have it all laid out nice and pretty for you on the, on the screen up here. But if you're taking notes, the very first note that you want to write down is this. There is a faith that doesn't save. There is a faith that doesn't save. Now that may sound shocking to some of you. Okay? I mean, that may just kind of strike your ears as bizarre, but Scripture is clear about this. It's replete with teachings about this very issue. And, and so let me just take you to one of the most logical ones that really illustrates this for us. If you want to turn there, it's Matthew 13. It's the parable of the sower and the soils. Matthew 13, verses 3 through 9. And it teaches us this lesson that not everybody who says they believe, not even everybody who acts like they believe, really believe. Not everybody has a faith is a real faith. Look at what Matthew 13, I'm going to start in verse 3 here. I'm reading out of the ESV now. It says, and he told them many things in parables. He just sort of shifted. This is a shifting point in Jesus' ministry. And he really just began to use parables all the time. And he told them many things in parables saying, here's the story, here's the parable. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell, among, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. Since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun arose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they were withered away. Verse 7, other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, the great thing about this parable is that we have the King Jesus commentary series to tell us what this means. Right on the heels of laying out the parable, 
Graham and I wish we had that every time. <laughs> but we have the King Jesus explanation of this parable starting in verse 18. So look at what it says. Hear then the parable of the sower. This is Jesus explaining this parable that he's just given. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the devil comes and snatches away what's been sown in their heart, in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So there's some people that hear the word of God, they hear the gospel preached, and there's such a hardness there that the seed never germinates. It doesn't find good soil, and so they never believe. And before they really can even have a chance to believe, the devil comes and snatches it away. There's no response at all. Okay? And we see that. We see people come and listen to the Word of God, and they, they, they do nothing. They're perfectly content to stay where they are. So that's the first person, the first scenario. So then we go to the second one. This is what was so long. As for, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, immediately he falls away. So there's some folks, and if you've been in church very long, you've seen this, okay? It's borne out in the reality of what we see in people's lives. Man, they come and at some point they hear the gospel and they receive it with joy. It's like I've been waiting my whole life to hear this. This is great news. And they embrace it and you think, man, they're going to change. They're, they, they're a new person. They're going to be a new creature. And then there's a period of time that comes, just like he says, and there's tribulation. Some trouble hits them. There's persecution. Something arises because of this, this commitment, partial commitment to the word. And when they hit the trouble, when they hit the persecution, they fall away. Their faith was never real. Now you say, well, how long does that take? Well, it, sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it doesn't take any time at all. I remember watching my, my stepdad who, who was a, a drug user, a drug dealer, uh, and I remember as a kid praying for him, just thinking, oh, man, I wish this guy would get saved. Well, one day he and my mom showed up where I worked, and they were so excited telling me about how my stepdad had been saved. He had gone to sit down and be counseled with his preacher, and he was, he was saved. And I was so excited. Oh, my gosh, I was so excited. And so I watched him for a little while, and, and I saw a change. I saw him reading the Bible. I'd never seen this man read the Bible. I'd never seen him have show any interest in the Word of God. And, and he was nicer to me because he wasn't always real nice to me. And I saw this change take place to a point. And then one day he got a phone call. And it was a phone call from the guy who lived down in southeast Texas who had, had been one of his sources for his drugs that he sold. Who literally brought drugs up from that area, supplied to him so he could redistribute in east Texas. And the guy came up and it was like, Boom. Everything that I thought was real about his faith showed up to him. And he completely reverted back to old life and he never looked back again. That's, and then there's the question. As for what's sown among, this is the one who hears, but deceitfulness of reproof is unfruitful. Well, there's some again. It, it, this is the real deal. And they're, they're hooked in. They're latched in. This is, and then they get so preoccupied with the world. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's prestige. Maybe it's getting that first house. Maybe it's getting that truck or that car they always wanted. It's, they have, we have all these benchmarks in life, you know, as we're growing up. And, and, you know, we want all of these things. And they get so focused on these things that it literally chokes the word, chokes the life out. 
And it becomes obvious that their faith was never real. And it says, as for the one sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a word, in one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. What's, what's the proof of this faith, this real faith? It's fruit. It's a changed life. Not everybody has the same fruit. In one person, it's a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another's thirty. But anytime you have real life, true faith, there's going to be a change. There's going to be fruit that's born out of that. And so that's what we see here. You say, well, okay, that's one verse, Clay. What are you saying? I don't know. Verse, let's, let's jump down just to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Everybody probably knows this verse. Matthew 7, 21. This, this says it unmistakably. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that plain enough for you? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name uh, and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, who worker, you workers of lawlessness. You see, there were folks who said, Lord, Lord, but the ones who really knew him were the ones that did. Not everyone who says, but the one who does the will of my Father. So there is a said faith that's not real. There's a faith that doesn't save. And we see that in these guys. What are some of the characteristics of this kind of faith? I just kind of want to pull three out of this passage here real quickly. Uh, because we need to know, okay? We need to know what real faith looks like and what false faith looks like. We need to know it first of all in our own lives. Scripture tells us over and over again to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Uh, every time we come to the Lord's table, like we did last Sunday, Scripture says, examine yourself. Check yourself out. Okay? Over and over again, Scripture tells us this. What are some of the characteristics that we see in this passage? Here's one. They would not acknowledge their sin. We see that here. They wouldn't acknowledge their sin. Verse 33. After he's told them, you know, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples, you'll know the truth. The truth will set, them, set you free. What do they say? They answered, we are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? We don't need to be free. Don't you know who our father is? They believed Jesus' teachings up to a point until he implied that they needed to be set free. And they became very indignant about this because they didn't feel like they were slaves to anyone or anything. Only slaves needed to be set free and in their mind, they were free children of Abraham. Now, there's a lot of discussion about, well, you know, did they have a bad memory? You know, they're, they're under Roman domination. They've been in slavery multiple times. I, I don't know. I, I just tend to think my belief is that, that they understood that there was the spiritual sense of freedom here. But I truly think that they thought they were just free. They were the chosen people of God. They were the children of Abraham. And so they were free. They didn't need to be set free. Verse 34, Jesus answered in them and said to them, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. All scripture is inspired by God, okay? But when the Lord Jesus says truly, truly, before he's about to say something, you, you better set up and listen and pay attention because even by his standards, by divine standards, this is really important. And he says, truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He's putting extra emphasis on this. All who practice sin, who habitually sin, become slaves to it. 
Okay? And guess what? Scripture is clear that every human being that's ever born into the human race practices sin. Okay? There's only been one that didn't practice sin. And he's the one that's speaking here. We, we practice sin because we're sinners by nature. And that's why Scripture says all have fallen short and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They would not acknowledge their sin. And that's a major problem because you can't, you, you can't be saved until you realize you're lost. Until a person is willing to admit that they are a guilty sinner condemned before a holy God, they can't be saved. If you don't believe me, the next time you're out at the lake or you're at a pool somewhere, there's people swimming... Just pick one of them that's out in the middle of the water swimming, having a good time, and just swim out and start trying to save them. And when they start fighting back, just explain to them, oh, no, I'm trying to save you. They're going to fight you tooth and toenail because they don't think they need saving. And, it, and it's that same sort of idea here. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 9, 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he goes on to say in verse 13, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. So they thought they were free sons of Abraham, but in reality they were slaves of sin. And Jesus makes it clear through, through the analogy that he uses is in verse 35 and 36 that slaves by definition don't have a permanent place in the family. Okay? In other words, he's saying to them, fellas, you may be a part of Abraham's family, you may be in his household, but you're a slave in his household. You're not a son. He goes on to say in that same analogy that, that it's the genuine son, the real son, who can set them free. They wouldn't acknowledge their sin. Number two, their faith wasn't in Christ alone. Verse 35, what did they say? We're Abraham's offspring. Okay? They had the beginnings of faith, but it wasn't in faith in Christ alone. As soon as they were pressed about their spiritual condition, their natural reaction was to bring up the fact that Abraham was father. Okay? The Jews thought they had an automatic ticket into heaven because of their physical lineage. You ever known anybody like that? They, they had a hook. Okay? They knew somebody. Maybe it was a, a kid in school. I, I was a teacher for five and a half years. I saw some kids like that. You know, they wanted to tell me, who, if they ever got in trouble, they wanted to be sure and tell me who their daddy was. Well, you know who my daddy is, don't you? That was their hook. They immediately appealed to that. And they thought that was their get-out-of-jail-free ticket. You know, or they get pulled over for a ticket. Well, I mean, you know, you know, I know the so-and-so, you know. And, and that's kind of the way they were. They, they thought they could leverage their family connection somehow. Now, you may be able to leverage your family connection to get out of trouble at school or get out of a ticket, but it, you can't get into the kingdom of God that way. No one in the history of mankind has ever been born physically into the kingdom, Okay. And no one has ever gotten a pass into the kingdom because of who their father was or what family they came from. And thankfully for a lot of us, we hadn't been kept out of the family of God because of who our family was or where we came from. Because some of us came some, from some pretty bad places. So the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. The only way to gain entrance or access is by spiritual means. And the spiritual means that the king has determined to use in allowing entrance into his presence and into his kingdom is faith in his son alone plus nothing. Okay? Plus nothing. And you know, John the Baptist understood their mindset really well because if we look over in Matthew 3, uh, verse 7, he's out at the Jordan River, he's been preaching, there's people coming to him to be baptized, and he looks up and there's some Pharisees coming, there's some Jewish leaders coming. Listen to what he says to them. Man, he nails it, he gets them. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. 
How's that for an evangelistic call? <laughs> you brood of, like you ought to try that, Graham. You brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit. Listen to this. This is what he tells the religious leaders. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. I mean, he nailed it. And I want you to notice the two main issues that he pressed them on, okay? They're responding to his message. They're going out to the Jordan River to be baptized. And he pressed them on two things. First, the genuineness of their repentance. Hey, if you're going to come out here acting like you're repentant, you better show some fruits. You better show the fruits worthy of repentance. So he presses them on that. And then he presses them on their the trust in Abraham. Okay, their religious heritage. He knew where they were coming from. Why? Because it's really common, not just for the Jewish leaders, it's common today. It's common for people to want to add Jesus to their life without giving up anything. Let me have a little Jesus, but I'm going to hang on to this sin that I like. Let me have a little Jesus, but I'm still going to trust in this or that or the other. And they treat it almost like they're going down you know, the buffet line at traditions. Let me have a little of this. Let me have a little of that. That doesn't work. Their faith wasn't in Christ alone. Okay. Third thing, real quick. They didn't receive and obey the word of God. They didn't receive and obey the word of God. And I'm just going to read the scripture here because Jesus says it better than I can. Listen to verse 37. If we drop down, this is a continuing dialogue here. We're only looking at verse 36. But just to prove my point, I want you to see how Jesus addresses them. Verse 37, I know that you were offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. My word finds no place in you. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? Again, this is Jesus speaking to them in response to this dialogue here. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says the natural man, the unsaved person, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. These folks didn't have a love for or an understanding of or a place for the word of God in their heart. And it was characteristic of, of that kind of faith. So theirs was a sad faith. It wasn't a real faith. They believed in Jesus up to a point. They would go so far, but they couldn't buy in all the way. How they responded to the word was proof of that. They proved themselves, as James says, to be hearers of the word but not doers of the word. And listen, folks, mental assent is not enough. True faith is not just about believing a set of facts, okay? It's not enough. Real faith involves more than that. What does it involve? Well, let's look at it real quickly. How do we know our faith is real or someone else's faith is real for that matter? In other words, what are the, what is the, another way we could say it is what's the mark of genuine faith? Well, Jesus tells us in verse, 30, verse 31 again. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly, really genuine disciples, okay? 
The mark of genuine faith is not just mental assent, assent to a set of facts, although faith has a content, and we, we, place, we believe in that content, the truth about Jesus, who he was, what he said, what he did. Okay? But it's not just that, and it's not just a profession, although it involves a profession. It's more than that. He says a genuine believer abides in his word. That word abide means to continue, to dwell in. Okay? Now, let me be clear. This is not a condition of forgetting saved. Rather, this is the fruit or evidence that you truly are saved. It's the evidence that your faith is genuine, that it's real. And this is something that the Apostle John comes back to again and again. If you fast forward and go to his first epistle in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, listen to what he says. And by this, 1 John 2, 3 and 4, And by this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So John comes back to this again and again. So to make sure we understand what's being said here, let's just be clear. He says, you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Well, what did Jesus mean by his word? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. His teachings, his doctrine, everything he said and did, everything that represented his life and what he did on the earth. But it also involves all of Scripture. Jesus says about the Scriptures, and John, and John uh, speaking to some of the Jews in John chapter 5, he says, You do not have his word, talking about the Father abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who, whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. All of Scripture testifies about Jesus. Okay, So when he says... Abide in my word. He's talking about obedience to scripture. Okay? Christ's word is God's word. And what does he mean by abide? Okay? Let's just drill down on that in just a second. The word abide means to habitually abide, to continue in. It means to dwell or be at home in God's word. You don't just visit the word on occasion. Okay? As in a guest. You move in. You live there. You wake up there. You return there every night. The word shapes your worldview. It governs and guides your thinking, your attitudes, your speech, your behavior. In other words, there isn't an area of your life that's not subject to the Word, the word of God. It's influence. Continuing or abiding obviously implies time spent in the Word over the long haul, okay? A person who just sort of picks and chooses among Jesus' teachings and decides for himself what parts he's going to believe, what parts he's going to obey, that person's not abiding. A person who... Obey sometimes when they feel like it, when it's convenient, but other times they don't when it's not or they don't feel like it. That person's not abiding in the Word. So my question to you is, are you abiding? Is this, is this con consistent with your life? Are you regularly spending time studying the Word? Are you comfortable there? D do you seek to obey it in every aspect of your life? Is that your goal? Those are all aspects of what it means to abide in Christ's word and habitually abiding in Christ's word is the benchmark for what it means to be a true disciple so we've seen that it's possible to have a false faith that doesn't save those Jews were an example of that we've also seen that there is a real faith a genuine faith that does save and that faith is marked by habitual obedience to the word of God you could say endurance in obedience perseverance to obedience it's not perfection. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not sitting up here trying to tell you that Christians are perfect. They're not. 
No Christian is perfect because every true believer can and does sin. Um, but when they sin, they hate it. And they can't live in a pattern of unbroken sin. And, you know, to quote a great theologian, uh, when they mess up, they're messed up about being messed up. Isn't that what you say, Graham? I mean, that's the attitude of a, a real Christian. Yeah, we mess up. But when we mess up, we're messed up about messing up. We don't want to do that. We love the law of God. We love the Word of God. We want to do what's right. So what's the benefit of this true faith? What's the benefit of this true faith? Well, it's, it's real freedom, okay? Real freedom. And we see that here. What kind of, what kind of freedom is, is in view here? The context is clear if we look at it. He's talking about it in verse 34 after the Jews have, have proudly declared their freedom based on their bloodline. Uh, Jesus really kind of cuts through all of that. He cuts to the heart of the matter. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus is offering freedom in the truest sense. Freedom from sin. He's the only one who's able to deal with the source of our slavery. So he's the only one that can offer true freedom. And the truth is anyone who sins is a slave of sin. The Bible is clear about that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've talked about that. But it's equally clear that if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So what does this freedom look like? Freedom in what sense? Well, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to summarize, okay? Freedom in two ways. And, and it's, more, it's more complicated than this, okay? Uh, but Graham could teach you, you could, you could preach a six-week sermon on this passage, just this passage right here, and I'm trying to condense it into about 30 minutes. But it's freedom in at least two ways. Number one, freedom from the power of sin, Freedom from the power of sin. When a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, when they become a disciple of Jesus Christ and they're learning the word and obeying the word and applying the word, they are set free from the power of sin. See, before you're saved, you don't have a choice. Okay? I mean, it's Ephesians. Before we were Christians, it's Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're, we're walking as slaves. We're dead men walking. We're just following what everybody else is doing. We're following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. That's, that's what we're living in. But when you, become a, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, someone who is spending time in the Word, abiding in the Word, following the Word, you are set free from that power of sin. It's broken. You, you now have a choice. And not only do you have a choice, you have a new nature inside of you that wants to do the right thing, that longs to do the right thing that loves the word of God and longs to obey it okay so there's there's this freedom from the power of sin I could say a lot more about that but what, but I just don't have time part number two in this and, and again there's more to it but at least this freedom from the presence of sin see freedom from the power of sin happens like that okay boom when when you have real faith true faith boom regeneration it happens the power of sin is broken in your life. You're a new person, a new creation. Okay? But freedom from the presence of sin is a process. It's a lifelong process. But because we have the freedom from power of sin, we're able to gradually, over the course of time, have freedom from the presence of sin in our lives. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens as we do exactly what Jesus talks about here. 
It happens as we spend time in the Word, as we obey Him as a disciple, as we spend time in the truth. Ultimately, gradually, we're set free. We learn about what God's Word says about things. We learn about what it means to be a good wife or a good husband. We learn about what it means to be a good parent. We learn about what it means to love our wives or submit and respect our husbands. We learn about what God's Word says about how to manage our money, how to raise our children. And as we understand those truths and walk in obedience to the Lord and apply those truths in our lives, get what? guess what? We're set free. We're set free from all the deception, from all of these voices that are speaking a million different things in this world that tell you all the wrong ways to do it. They give you all the wrong ideas about how to live. And when we begin to apply the Word of God and follow the Word of God in every aspect of our lives, we're set free. Free to be and do what we were created to be and do. And only Jesus can set us free. Only if Jesus can can uh, give us that kind of freedom. And I love when Jesus prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17. You say, well, how, you know, what's the tool God uses? What's the tool? How does this happen? Jesus tells us in John chapter 17, verse 17, when he's praying for his disciples, he's talking to the Father and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's the tool. That is the tool. How does sanctification happen? It happens as we come to live in and study and apply the word, which is the truth. And I know we live in a society that says there is no truth. Everything is relative. You have your truth. Bill has his truth, and I have my truth, and, you know, and Scott has his truth. Well, I'm, here, I'm here to tell you there's one truth. His name is Jesus. This is his word right here. And as we apply it, as we study it, as we walk in it, as we live it, as we take it seriously as disciples of Jesus Christ, we find freedom, real freedom, true freedom. I hope you long for that kind of freedom. It's available, if you don't know it, it's available today. But only true disciples, only to true disciples of Jesus who abide in his word and who know and apply it to their lives. But if you'll repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation... You can become his disciples and you can start down that path and you can know that kind of freedom. And so if you're not there and you want to be there, I know that there are, there are a number of elders in the church and I'd be happy to visit with you as well after the service. Would you pray with me?